Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to be doing part two in my series on McCulloch versus Maryland. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Locking Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I especially want to welcome you. Uh, this is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Uh, and, well, let's just get right into it, huh? Like I said before, Today we are going to be doing the part two in the McCulloch versus Maryland series, and today we are going to be talking about the original meaning of the necessary and proper clause. So, what is the necessary and proper clause? Well, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, it says, Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Now, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention declared by resolution that Congress should possess the power to legislate, quote, in all cases for the general interests of the Union, and also in those cases to which the United States are separately incompetent, or in which the harmony of the United States may be interrupted by the exercise of individual legislation. Now, it was left to a committee on detail, uh, made up of a distinguished body consisting of four prominent lawyers. They were Oliver Ellsworth, Edmund Randolph, John Rutledge, and James Wilson, and a prominent businessman, Nathaniel Gorham, to translate that resolution into a concrete form. And at the Constitutional Convention, the Committee on Detail took the Convention's resolution on the National Legislative Authority and particularized them into a series of enumerated congressional powers. This formalized the principle of enumerated powers under which federal law can govern only as to matters within the terms of some power-granting clauses of the Constitution. By including the necessary and proper clause, at the conclusion of Article I, Section 8, the framers set the criteria for laws that, even if they are not within the terms of other grants, serve to make other federal powers effective. Now, although modern scholars often express bafflement, with the Necessary and Proper Clause, the meaning and purpose of the clause would actually have been very clear to any 18th century citizen. The enumeration of congressional powers in Article 1, Section 8 is similar to the enumeration of powers that one would find in an 18th century private agency instrument or corporate charter. Now, that is not surprising, as the Founders viewed the Constitution, in the words of James Iredell, uh, a great power of attorney in which the principles of we the people grant power to official agents being the government. Now, 18th century agency law understood that grants of power to agents generally carried implied powers in their wake. The enumerated or principal granted powers were presumptively accompanied by implied or incidental powers that were needed 
to effectuate the principled powers. And as William Blackstone wrote, a subject a subject's grant shall be construed to include many things besides what are expressed if necessary for the operation of the grant. So agency instruments accordingly often referred to necessary, proper, or most restrictively necessary and proper incidental powers of agents. A committee of detail composed of lawyers and a businessman would have written a public accustom to serving as to employing agents in a wide range of everyday affairs would have recognized that the necessary and proper clause as a provision clarifying the scope of incidental powers accompanying the grants of enumerated or principal congressional powers. Now, so understood the framers, uh, they crafted the necessary and uh, proper clause was to serve three great purposes. The first was to facilitate organization of the government, such as empowering Congress to organize a judicial department and to create executive offices. The second was to help effectuate the other enumerated powers of Congress. And the third, and most general, was to define the limits of implied or incidental powers. So as to the first purpose, the Constitution could not prescribe all points of government organization, so the detail committee member, Edmund Randolph, proposed empowering Congress to organize the government. James Wilson proposed the necessary and proper clause as a substitute authorizing laws for carrying into execution the, quote, other federal powers. The committee and then the convention approved. Now, the organizational function of this clause was recognized from the outset. Among Congress's first acts were establishing executive department and staffs, determining the number of justices on the Supreme Court, and allocating the judicial power among the federal courts. The Supreme Court had acknowledged the Necessary and Proper Clause as the source of Congress's power to legislate about the judicial process and procedure. Now, as to the second and more significant purpose, the clause also supports laws for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, that is, those specified for the legislature itself in Article 1, Section 8. It thus enhances the other powers given to Congress. During the ratification debates, opponents dubbed it the sweeping clause and the general clause, arguing that it subverted the principle of... <coughs> of enumerated powers by giving sweeping general legislative competence to Congress. The anti-federalist Brutus, who uh, was New York's Robert Yates, for example, said, It leaves the national legislature at liberty to do everything which in their judgment is best. Defenders of the Constitution strongly disagreed. At Pennsylvania's ratification convention, James Wilson, the author of the clause, explained that the words necessary and proper are limited and defined by the following. Quote, for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, end quote. It is saying no more than the powers that we have already particularly given shall be effectually carried into execution. It authorized 
what is necessary to render effectual the particular powers that are granted. Congress thus can make laws about something otherwise outside the enumerated powers insofar as those laws are necessary and proper to effectuate federal policy for something within an enumerated power. Now as to the third and the broadest implication for constitutional law. The Articles of Confederation had expressly forbade any inference or incidental powers by specifying that each state retains every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. The Constitution contains no such clause and it is therefore appropriate to find some measure of implied congressional powers. Had the Constitution been silent about implied powers, the ordinary background rules of agency law would have mandated inferring some measure of such powers to effectuate the enumerated powers, but would have left uncertainty about how broadly or narrowly to construe the implied powers. By selecting the relatively restrictive phrase, necessary and proper, in the conjunctive, to describe the range of implied congressional powers, the Constitution eliminated that uncertainty by limiting implied powers to those that bear a close relationship to principal powers. Accordingly, every law enacted under the Necessary and Proper Clause must meet four requirements. One, it must be incidental to a principal power. Two, it must be for carrying into execution a principal power. Three, it must be necessary for that purpose. And four, it must be proper for that purpose. And because the clause provides that all such laws shall be necessary and proper for executing federal powers rather than prescribing that such laws shall be deemed by Congress to be necessary and proper, these inquiries are all objective, contrary to Brutus's suggestion of unreviewable congressional uh, discretion. And now, getting to uh, the sort of central case at hand here, McCulloch v. Maryland, 1819. Chief Justice Marshall confirmed the original understanding of the clause. He noted that other grants of power by themselves, according to the dictates of reason, would imply a means of execution. He went on, however, to declare that the Constitution has not left the right of Congress to employ the necessary means for the execution of the powers conferred by the government to general reasoning. For the Chief Justice, the Necessary and Proper Clause makes express a power that otherwise would only have been implied and thus might have been subject to uh, caveat. By implanting the clause among the powers of Congress, the framers confirmed that Congress may act and make the constitutional plan effective. In his parsing of the words of the clause, he concluded that the necessary and proper clause authorizes laws enacted as means really calculated to affect any of the objects entrusted to the government. Arguments for laws that lack this crucial means-to-end characteristic find no support in Marshall's opinion or in the Necessary and Proper Clause generally. 
while modern case law does not fully reflect the original meaning of the necessary and proper clause, it has moved significantly towards uh, conformance with the original meaning in recent years, at least with respect to several of the clause's requirements. Most notably, the Supreme Court has recognized, uh, after a long period of neglect, that requirement that laws under the necessary and proper clause be incidental to a principal power, as Marshall had emphasized in McCulloch, now, the McCulloch case concerned, in large measure, whether the Necessary and Proper Clause authorized Congress to incorporate a national bank, given that neither the power to create a corporation nor the power to create a bank is among the principal enumerated powers of Congress. The Chief Justice devoted the bulk of his opinion to explaining why the power to incorporate a bank was incidental, that is, not as great as a principal power. He said that incorporation was not like the power of making war or levying taxes or of regulating commerce, a great substantive and independent power which cannot be implied as incidental to other powers, but rather must be considered as a means not less usual, not of higher dignity. If a power is not incidental, uh, if it is of the same dignity, or as the founding era agency lawyers would have said, as worthy as the principal enumerated powers, then it cannot be implied under the necessary and proper clause, no matter how convenient, useful, or even indispensable it might be to effectuate a principal power. This basic idea played a key role nearly two centuries later in Chief Justice John Roberts' decisive opinion for the court in uh, the NFIB versus Sibelius case, in which the court upheld the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act provision known as the individual mandate to purchase government-approved health insurance under the taxing power, but found the mandate unsupportable by either the commerce or necessary and proper clause. In explaining why the mandate was not authorized by the necessary and proper clause, Chief Justice Roberts wrote, extensively quoting McCulloch, that the clause vests Congress with authority to enact provisions incidental to the numerated powers. Although the clause gives Congress authority to legislate on the vast mass of incidental powers which must be involved in the Constitution, it does not license the exercise of any great substantive and independent powers beyond those specifically enumerated. He concluded that a governmental power to force people to buy a product could not be incidental to the exercise of power uh, to force, uh, excuse me. He concluded that a governmental power to force people to buy a product could not be incidental to the exercise of the commerce power. Rather, such a conception of the necessary and proper clause would work a substantial expansion of federal authority. Accordingly, it is now clear that any power claimed by Congress under the Necessary and Proper Clause must be incidental, meaning that it must not be the sort of power that an ordinary reader would assume must be enumerated as a principal power in order to exist. In addition to being incidental to a principal power, any law enacted under the Necessary and Proper Clause must be for carrying into execution some other federal power. 
be necessary and proper clause allows Congress to decide whether, when, and how to legislate for carrying into execution the powers of another branch, but it respects and even reinforces the principles of separation of powers. Now, unlike Randolph's authorization to organize the government, which the Committee of Detail replaced with Wilson's more exacting phrase, laws for carrying into execution the powers reposed in another branch, can only mean laws to help effectuate the discretion of that other branch, not laws to control or limit that discretion. It gives Congress no power to instruct or impede another branch in the, perform in the performance of that branch's constitutional role. For example, Congress could not, under the guise of this clause, dictate to the courts how to decide a case. Uh, and in fact, in United States v. Klein in 1871, this is exactly what was found. Uh, or, I should say, nor could they use the necessary and proper clause to tell the president whom to prosecute. Of course, when the clause is invoked to effectuate ends within Congress's own powers, it compounds. Congress's discretion is not only the selection of a means, but also the selection of policy ends, and that rests in Congress's own discretion according to how this clause operates. Incidental laws that carry into execution federal powers must be necessary for that purpose. The requirement of necessity entails some degree of casual connection between the implementing laws and the implemented power. The degree of that required casual connection between the means chosen and the particular end sought, i.e. the specific enumerated power, has been a contentious issue for more than two centuries. Now Thomas Jefferson and the state of Maryland in McCulloch famously argued that a necessary law must be indispensable to the achievement of a permissible government end. Alexander Hamilton equally famously argued that necessity, in this context, meant merely that a law might be conceived to be conducive to a permissible end. And somewhat less famously, but no importantly, no less importantly that is, James Madison really trod something of a middle ground, describing necessary as requiring, quote, a definite connection between means and end, in which the executory law and the executed power are linked by some obvious and precise affinity. In McCulloch, Chief Justice Marshall, writing for the court, did decide to uphold the Second Bank of the United States utilizing the very rationale that Secretary Hamilton and James Wilson before him had employed. Marshall rejected Jefferson's view that the clause limits Congress to those means without which the grant of power would be nugatory. That would have precluded Congress from deliberating alternatives. And the court read the clause instead as vesting discretion with respect to to the means by which the power it confers are to be carried into execution. McCulloch countenance that any means calculated to produce the end, giving Congress the capacity to avoid, uh, to avail itself of experience, to exercise its reason, and to accommodate its legislation to circumstances. 
So, according to McCulloch, unless otherwise inconsistent with the letter and the spirit of the Constitution, any law that is appropriate, that is to say, plainly adapted to the end, and really calculated to affect any of the objects entrusted to the government, is valid under the Necessary and Proper Clause. For the judiciary to inquire into the degree of necessity, Marshall said in the case, would be to tread on legislative ground. So long as a law promotes an end within the scope of some enumerated power, extraneous objectives do not render it unconstitutional. Indeed, one means might be preferred, preferred over others precisely because it advances another objective as well. For example, besides helping Congress effectuate various enumerated powers, a bank could help make private loans to augment business capital or to satisfy consumer wants. And while these extraneous ends could provide no independent constitutional justification, Hamilton urged them as principal reasons why the Constitution should, or excuse me, why the Congress should incorporate a bank. Now, record-keeping and reporting requirements regarding drug transactions, if apt as means to enforce federal taxes on those transactions, are no less valid because crafted for police ends that are not within any enumerated power. Extraneous objectives are constitutionally immaterial, but to invoke the necessary and proper clause, a sufficient link to some enumerated power end is constitutionally indispensable. McCulloch remains the classic elucidation of this clause, but it has been elaborated in many other cases, such as in the Proceedings Concerning the Legal Tender Acts of 1862. Now here Congress, in an effort to stabilize commerce and support military efforts during the Civil War, determined that new paper currency must be accepted at face value as legal tender. The Supreme Court in the legal tender cases in 1871 affirmed Congress's discretion to choose among means it thought conducive to enumerated powered ends. The court upheld Congress's choice even though better means might have been chosen and though the legal tender clause proved to be of little help. The degree of the necessity for any congressional enactment or the relative degree of its appropriateness, if it have any appropriateness, is for consideration in Congress and not here, said the court in that case. By the way, in case you don't remember, I have done a video on the legal tender cases if you want to learn more about them, and they are really actually really interesting. I'll put a link uh, in a card in the top right-hand corner right about mm, now, and I'll put one down in the description as well. Now, uh, to kind of conclude what we are talking about here today, after the preamble, the very first sentence of the Constitution reads, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States. Therefore, evaluating whether a federal law is constitutional must begin with whether Congress has acted within one of the enumerated powers it is granted in the Constitution. 
Identifying the meaning of an enumerated power, however, is only part of what is required to establish that Congress is or is not acting constitutionally within its delegated powers. We must also reach a conclusion about the meaning of the necessary and proper clause. The meaning we attach to that clause not only determines the scope of congressional power, it determines as well the degree of deference that courts owe a congressional judgment that it is acting within its power. If you take the view attributed to Marshall that necessary means only merely convenient or useful, then courts are generally unqualified to second-guess a congressional determination of expediency. On the other hand, if the clause requires first showing of a means and fit as per Madison, Jefferson, and even Hamilton, together with showing that second, the means chosen do not prohibit the rightful exercise of freedom or violate principles of federalism or separation of powers, and third, the claim by Congress to be pursuing an enumerated end is not a pretext for pursuing other ends not delegated to it, as per Marshall in McCulloch, then an inquiry into each of these is clearly within the competence of the courts. The meaning one attributes to necessary and proper is, therefore, enormously important, because the nature and scope of judicial review turns on what meaning one adopts. The evidence presented here uh, in this episode should be significant uh, to the many who believe that the answer to this interpretive question turns in whole or in part on the original meaning of the necessary and proper clause. All right. Well, that should do it for me here today. I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here on Categorical Imperatives. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can go over to the Patreon page, and there's links down in the description to go there. Um, if you're not able to support the show financially, that's all right. I still really appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here with me today all the same. Now, if you do have a second to uh, either, if you like the episode, click the like button. If you disliked it, click the dislike button, I guess. I, I guess I don't really give a fuck. Uh, but yeah, um, you just you just do you. Um, and if you want to leave me a comment, I always really do love hearing from you guys in the comment section. Let me know what you thought about the episode or the topic or if there's topics you'd like to hear me talk about in general or, or just anything like that. Uh, I always love to hear from you guys. So in get, uh, until next time, and I'll be back with a part three on McCulloch very, very soon, in just the next couple of days here. So until then, uh, this has been uh, me, Locking Liberal, uh, for Categorical Imperatives, talking about McCulloch versus Maryland, and of course, as always, De Linda S. Carthago. <laughs>